get into this. Oh, Holy Spirit, we come to you uh, longing, longing for more of you. We come before you needing your words, needing your thoughts, needing your guidance. We ask that you would uh, sort of unpack our lives right now, in a sense. Just let us leave all the baggage uh, on the platform as we get on the train with you today. Anything that would weigh us down, anything that would keep us from hearing you, anything that would uh, cloud our vision or clog our ears, we pray that you would take out of our hands, that you would remove it for us, and that we could gaze upon your face, Lord Jesus, with clarity and with great desire to worship one more time. We thank you for that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So, um, a number of people be praying for the church. A number of people have been sick this week. My mom, uh, <laughs> half an hour before we were going to eat Thanksgiving dinner, we had to take her to the hospital. She had a staph infection. She's still there now, so she's doing fine. But she was, that was kind of bummed. She was kind of bummed, bummed out that she had family come up from Florida and she went to the hospital. A few other people have had some things going on. So just be praying for the church during this time as well. So. Um, turn with me to page 336 in your pew Bibles, page 336. It's Nehemiah chapter 9. We're going to specifically focus uh, on verses 32 through 37, but um, keep, keep it open as I, as I read and follow along with me as I read, because we're going to be referring back to different parts of it during this sermon. And it begins this way, verse 32, chapter 9, says, Now therefore our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. So this is a prayer from them to God, right? And it continues. The hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all your people, from the days of of the kings of Assyria until today. So if we remember, stopping there for a moment, God allowed the Assyrians to conquer Israel due to her unwillingness to follow him or walk with him, her unwillingness to be a light to the nations around her. And uh, so they've had their difficulty in, you know, they're coming back from exile. So to apply this today, I thought it would be kind of neat to imagine if we were writing this passage ourselves in our day and right now as God's people. And if we did, just taking that first little section there, we might say something like this. God, you are faithful to your promise of love. You are incredible, strong, and unchanging in your character of love as you have sustained us through and delivered us from so much. Please consider the pain that we have suffered or we have from the days since we were conquered by our cultural ideologies until now. Because we're not being conquered by Assyrians or some other people group. We are being conquered right now by ideologies, by thought processes, right? Um, We know the modern church, and I hope this doesn't sound too strong, has prostituted itself to culture. It's it's prostituted itself with culture. It's compromised its witness, its values, its beliefs for the sake of acceptance of others or ease, maybe. And we have listened to other voices, and we have decreasingly listened to God's voice, right? 
It continues, verse 33. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. Now, take into account that people think the God of the Old Testament is this mean, angry God. This doesn't sound like a mean, angry God to me, right? Verse 34, our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in, the king, in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land that you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways, right? Again, if we were going to write this in the year of 2022, we might say something in, like this. In all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous and good. You have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. The church as a whole has not lived in accordance with your gospel. We have not listened to the wisdom of your word. Even when you had blessed us with so much in this free and beautiful land, even when we, were, we benefited from your goodness and provisional abundance, we've paid no attention to your kingdom call and refused to repent from evil ways. Because you remember, and I've quoted this many times, Barna's research says that only 13% of teaching pastors, people in the pulpit, right, in America right now, have a biblical worldview. And that means that 87% of teaching pastors in the pulpit are preaching a message that maybe uses the Bible a little bit, but it's really a syncretistic message. It's marrying the world's ideologies with itself. It's, it's polluted by these cu current ideolo uh, cultural ideologies, and we have allowed them to do this because we have agreed with them. It's not just them that we point the finger at. Every time you point the finger, there's three pointing back at you, right? We have agreed with them. We have allowed that to happen in America. We've participated in the sin, right? It continues, verse 36. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and the, and, and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. The rule, they rule over our bodies, our cattle, as they please. We are in great distress. And again, final, a final translation for today for our modern times might be this. We are slaves of our own making. We realize that now. Be because of our sins, we lose our freedom. And those who do not know you increasingly exert control over us. We are colonized by that which is not of you. The story of Ezra speaks to the need for genuine repentance, right? Genuine repentance, turning away from our sin, which has nearly ruined us. Acknowledging that their sin had left them spiritually bankrupt, these exiles had to admit their failures before God, before each other, and they had to go to extreme measures to correct them, to course correct. And so when God calls us to turn back towards Him so we can accomplish what He has set out before us, we must be willing to make significant changes in order to honor Him, right? You know, when backpacking, you may or may not know, Kim and I backpack, love to backpack long distances, just 
Some of the best moments of our lives are out on the trails. It's great. But it's smart to backpack on a trail that is marked, <laughs> right? Because you can easily get lost. Some, some trails in a forest are, you know, not so clearly followed. You know, they're not worn away enough or leaves have covered the trail in, in, in the fall and it looks like everything else. And if it's marked, though, on the trees, you're able to follow easily. So forestry agents, if you don't know, go out there and they mark these trails with, you know, colored blazes, red blazes, blue blazes, white blazes, whatever it is, depending on the trail, right? And when there's a turn in the trail, they use a certain order in to show the turn. You can see it up there. So if you hike with your head down, not looking at the trees, not looking where you're going, not really paying attention, you can easily get lost. And we've done that before, right? And let's say you're hiking for about a half a day and suddenly you look up and you find out that you can't see any, you know, blaze markers on the trees and you're kind of confused and you're lost. What do you do, right? Well, do you say, well, I'm lost, but best thing for me to do is keep going forward. I'm sure I'll get to my destination, right? I don't think, I don't think that that would be the best thing. It's exactly what got you lost in the first place, right? Um, logic would tell you that would just get you more lost, that it would be pig-headed and idiotic to do that, right? The logical and right answer actually is to turn around and backtrack to find the, the original trail markers in the original trail and then continue to hike with your head up looking at the trees, following them to your destination. You want to get to where you want to go, right? In other words, you go back to go forward. You're not going backwards. To go backwards would actually be to go forwards at that point, wouldn't it? It would actually be to keep on the same course that got you lost in the first place. And we all want progress in our lives, you know, in, in all ways. But progress often means turning back to go, go back to the right path. And in that case, the person that is willing to recognize that and willing to turn around first is the wisest, right? Right? Same is true with math. I mean, if, you're, if you make a mistake and you realize that you, you have made that mistake, you take the time to erase it, or you know, erase all your scribble, <coughs> and begin again, you're going to get to uh, you know, using the principles of math that are correct, the sooner you're going to get to the, the proper the answer to the equation. God's Word is sort of like that to us, it's a marked trail through life. It's, it is the safe and healthy route through the treacherous woods of life, so to speak, which leads to the right destination. It's the proper steps to the right answers in life. And Israel, throughout her history, often got lost like this, didn't she? If, you, if you've spent any time reading the Old Testament, you know that. They've disregarded over and over again the marked trail of God's Word. And actually, in verses 1 through 31 of this chapter, it outlines the history of Israel very, very clearly, how God blessed them with all of creation. He chose Abraham, if you remember, and made an everlasting covenant with Abraham to build God's people on earth, to build the nation of Israel, and then to give them this fruitful land and all that kind of stuff. And then in verse 8, it says, you have kept your promise, promises because you are righteous. You are righteous, right? And then it recounts 
their time in, under Egyptian slavery and how God rescued them from that in mighty ways and sustained them all throughout the desert to Mount Sinai where they rebelled again and again, you know, even as Moses was given the Ten Commandments, which they refer to in verse 13. It says, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. Trail markers for life, right? It outlines how God fed them, right? And gave them water in the desert for all those years. Then again, how he led them to go and to find the land promised to their ancestors. But again, in verses 16 through 19, it says, But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. Now think about that. Stiff-necked. What is that? What's that an image of? It's like, you know, I'm just... I am myopic. I can only see in one direction. I can't turn my head to the left or right. I can't turn around and see what's behind me. I can't see the rest of the world. I'm only looking at it in this way. It's like this, this pride, this arrogance makes us, uh, makes us hard and stiff-necked, right? It's a really good picture, right? So they became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles that you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and, and their rebellion appointed a, and in their rebellion appointed a I can't speak this morning appointed a leader in order to return the, to their slavery. They actually wanted to return to, to Egypt, right? But you are a forgiving, gracious, and compassionate, uh, forgiving God, gra- gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. That's the Old Testament God, right? Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt. God had just already done so much for them, and he's up there getting the Ten Commandments, and they're making a calf. Or when they committed awful blasphemies, it says, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. For 40 years, God sustained them in that wilderness, remember? Then God conquered the evil sin of the the surrounding nations to bring them into this spacious and abundant promised land. Now, if you don't think that those actions were evil uh, of the surrounding nations, I've got another sermon that you can listen to online that I gave about that. And when you hear that, you'll be like, oh, okay, I get it, why it was so evil. But again, verse 26 tells us this. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them to, in order to turn back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So what was God's choice, right? To, in response to this rebellious people that t- constantly go off trail, constantly wander off the reservation, right? It tells us in verse 27, it says, You delivered them into the hands of their enemies who, oppre- who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But again, they go off trail. Verse 28 says, But as soon as they were at rest... They again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. 
And then again, in, in verses 29 through 31, it tells us this. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said that person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, you see how this language, when we, when we walk away from God, we become arrogant, we become prideful, we become stiff-necked, we become stubborn. All these descriptors are of that kind of a person that does not listen to the Lord anymore. They're not humble, right? So stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. God is extremely patient. Think about how many times a day you turn your back on the Lord and how many times he does not punish you for that turning, right? By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. This is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God of the New Testament. Same. Always has been the same. What's the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, going off trail, instead of turning back to the right path, you push forward anyway, only getting yourself more lost. The Scripture preaches itself. You don't need me, right? Read this, read it, just read it and read it and read it, and it just sinks into you. And after this prayer that focuses on the history of Israel and God's promises and provisions and personal acknowledgement of their sin, the Levites lead the exiles in this prayer of restoration, right? And let's hope that that is true repentance, right? A turning away from a lost and destructive path in order to return to God's sure path, which leads to life. One commentator claims the Levite's prayer is dictated and directed to them as a sermon as much as it is a prayer to God, a sermon to them as much as it is a prayer to God, you know? And I think he's right. Outlining God's presence throughout the history of Israel, painting a picture of his ongoing work in creation. Depicting God as sovereign Lord over all of creation who preserves His divine handiwork. And the appropriate response to any such God like this is, can only be lavish, thankful worship, right? Lavish, thankful worship. So the Levites paint this picture of the exiles' continued battle with sin and this disobedience in you know, by identifying the ways that their present generation had part, participated in the same sins as their ancestors did. Sometimes the best way to connect the work of God in the past uh, to our present circumstance is to show how in the present people still behave the same way. You know, we often think that these times are worse than other times. Well, no, it's pretty much the same, right? Many of us who proclaimed to be followers of Christ, stand in the proverbial woods donning our little backpacks with self-help books and all of our little ideologies stuffed in there from the world around us, looking around, not knowing where we are because we are lost, right? And wisdom and Scripture dictate that we give careful thought to our ways. We heard that in Haggai a number of times, right? Asking, what has brought me here? Why did I get to this point? Why do I feel so lost? Why am I so lost? 
And the answer is that often we've just lost sight of God's Word. We don't desire it. We don't want it. We don't listen to it. We listen to everything else but it. Like Israel in verse 28, as soon as we are at rest, as soon as we are feeling blessed, we are feeling at peace, when trouble and strife are far away from our doorstep, we turn away. We just do. Affluence is maybe the most potent wine that we can drink. Right? We don't sit at the foot of Christ, allowing Him to speak to us through His Word in order to define our worldview, in order to define you know, how we view the world and our reality around us. We listen to everything else but Jesus in that, right? And we pick and choose what we like from here and there. And we piece together and cobble together some sort of strange image. We take side trails of cultural ideologies designed by the enemy to deceive us, and it has gotten us nothing but lost. Nothing but lost. We let the world define our God for us, not His Word. We, we let the world define what love is, even though God is love, and whatever God says is loving, even when it hurts or it's countercultural. It's actually the loving thing. Even whole Christian movements have syncretized the message of Christ with this secular worldview. They've just put it all in a pot together and they're preaching something that is not at all about the God of the Bible. In a book review, uh, Emily Morales says, Culture tells us to find meaning in ourselves, whereas the Christian worldview says we find meaning in Christ. We find meaning outside of ourselves. She says, counterintuitively, counterintuitively, it is the search for happiness which leads to greater discontentment. Isn't that true? It is true. You buy some new little trinket, some little goodie, and somebody scratches it. Right? And you're, oh, right? Or you just can't get that next thing, right? It's, you're never content. The good life she says, is found when we give up pursuing happiness and we pursue meaning instead that our true selves are found in following Christ or in Christ and setting aside self-interest and serving and loving others in the name of Christ. Amen. Those two worldviews cannot be farther apart. They are so different. One has to be right, and the other one has to be wrong. And I think you know which one I think is wrong and which one I think is right. And although we do this, we mix these things, the great promise of hope that is found in this confession of Nehemiah chapter 9 is that God has remained faithful even when they had not. All the time. Is that not gospel to you, right? That, that God redeems even when we wander off path and we deserve the worst of punishments. That God has remained the same throughout Old and New Testament. He has never changed. He is exactly the same. He is constantly redeeming and restoring even when we go astray in the most heinous of ways. And we can get pretty wicked, can't we? 
The confession points to what exiles trust to be true, that God is a covenant God. He's a promise keeper, right? He makes promises that he cannot and will not break since it would be counter to his own character to break them. He is faithful that way. What are we? (laughs) We're not that. Brenneman explains it well. He says the covenant relation between God and his people is central in the Bible. The people knew God was faithful and merciful because of his action in the past. They recognized that God is the great, mighty, and awesome God, all-powerful and sovereign, yet they remembered his covenant of love with his people. This huge God that created the universe loves me and you. It's amazing when you think about it. Knowing this to be true of God would create a great sense of trust in God, wouldn't it? It really would. When you look back on all the history and you can see God's faithfulness throughout it, it makes you trust Him. When everything and everyone else fail us, God does not. You might be sitting there saying, well, He's not showed up on my... Wait, wait. That a thankful sort of attitude is key despite our suffering, right? Finding that the things that we can control in our internal lives, our internal environments, in choosing to believe God's promises and in disregarding all that out there and just saying, I believe you, are far more fundamental to achieving the good life than are the things that we can't control in our external environment, right? And knowing this, we can acknowledge that we often bring about our own misery when we choose to ignore the Word of God. He has laid the trail. All we need to do is walk it. All we need to do is walk it. As these exiles returned back to the true Mark Trail, worshiping God is necessary. They find out that it's necessary for humanity. They could trust His promises, right? To hold true even when they hadn't held up their side. And that is worshipful. That's worthy of worship. Repentance is the key to restoration, isn't it? It really is. Repentance is key to restoration. Once restored, they knew that they could approach God with confidence because they knew His promises. They had heard the reading of the law and of their history, right? The promises they had heard based on passages like 2 Corinthians 7, 14, when Solomon had dedicated the temple and he said, "If my God said to the people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Now, by the way, we are not talking about earning our salvation, right? We're not talking about doing better so that we can stay in God's good graces. God's grace has flooded us. We cannot lose our salvation, but we want to walk well. We want to do this well. We want to worship the Lord with all of our hearts and minds and soul and strength and everything else that is within us, right? We want to love people into the kingdom of God. We want Alpha to be packed 
with people that are looking for something. And we want to hand them the answer in love. Right? The key to the, the exiles turning towards God would be their willingness to acknowledge and accept that, that God's judgment had been just, that it was right, and that the punishment that they suffered was of their own doing. Right? We can't blame God. This is not a time for excuses, right? You've got to scratch your butts, right? got to scratch your butts, right? Because if you've ever been wronged by somebody and they say, I'm sorry, but, the but negates the, the, the sorry, doesn't it? it does, the sorry doesn't mean anything when they say but, does it? I'm sorry, but I was hungry. I'm sorry, but I was depressed. I'm sorry, but they told me to do it. <laughs> None of that flies with, with a parent and a child, by the way. My mom used to say to me, I don't care what everybody else does. I care about you. But mom, everybody's going. Oh, but mom this, but mom that. I don't care. You know, I only care about you. True repentance means no excuses, right? None. It's an acknowledgement of our total depravity before God. Not even, it's not even driven by the desire to be blessed again. It's simply a contrite, broken spirit before the Lord, which says, you are God. I love you. I want to follow you. You are right. You know best. The need for restoration here is obvious, but the, the restoration would happen only when they acknowledge their need for repentance. We've lost this art. Repentance is not an easy thing. And once that occurred, the promise would fuel their desire to be willing to do whatever is necessary to return to these covenant ways. Brenneman describes why the themes for restoration uh, found here are critical for believers today. He says, this chapter is full of practical theology. Remember a few weeks back I taught you about theology. All theology is practical. And, And everything you do is theologically driven. You act out of what you believe to be true of God, right? So practical theology, he says, it puts emphasis on three great themes. Three great themes. What God has done, how the people disobeyed God, and what God continues to do in history, right? These are very important themes for this community of returned exiles as they they are, you know, still for us today. God's providential role in history is displayed with great care here in these words when we read it you know uh carefully what humans may attribute to secular causes the biblical authors understood to have been derived from none other than the living god amen we have been drunk on the secular notions of why things are the way they are for way too long There is an internal battle in all of us. Modern psychology and science and, and, oh, that can't jive with faith. Whenever I study it, we lead the way. They always trail behind. (laughs) I am serious. I don't preach this stuff because I get a paycheck. I don't preach this because it makes me look good 
This is the reality of what we live in. We have to get back to this. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just stay in the room. We'll keep talking, and the lights will go on eventually. But we have really denied our God for way too long. We all make decisions that sometimes require us to admit that we've been wrong, right? It's not easy, but it is a requirement. I hated to use it, but, (laughs) you know, every pastor uses Braveheart at some point. But in the movie Braveheart, uh, Robert the Bruce recognizes his own failures, and he admits his own betrayal when he lets his father deceive him uh, in giving up William Wallace, which was the actual wrong thing to do. But he does it because his father deceived him. And in the scene where he confronts his father, Robert the Bruce says, you deceived me. And he says, and his father says, you let yourself be deceived. You always knew what had to happen here. You let yourself be deceived. Deep down, we know that we've allowed ourselves to be deceived. You don't need my preaching to hear it. The, the, the Spirit whispers in your heart. We've given ourselves over to the enemy in, so, in a myriad of ways. We've chosen to go off the marked path of God so often, given it looked interest, more interesting or it looked fun or it looked like e- it was easier to walk. We no longer have the moral backbone, and I'm talking in generalities across the board, the moral backbone or the confidence or the solidity of character to speak truth to a lost world. We're, we're victims. We're, you know, gosh, it's sad. I want bold Christians. I want confident Christians that know that this is right. That's what we have. We have solidity in the Scriptures. But we sit up and we apologize. and Well, oh, I'd like to hear your opinion too. I don't want to hear their opinion. I've heard it. And it's lacking. I'm, I'm sorry, and that might sound harsh, but we need to speak with boldness these days. Sorry, I don't know where I'm coming off with all this stuff. Whew, I am wound up. But it's interesting, in chapter 9, verse 2, listen to this. It says this, Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Now, why did they do that? Why did they separate themselves from all foreigners? Now, that means people that weren't Isra- you know, from Israel, right? People that weren't the people of God at that moment, right? And that symbolizes to us that they had to separate themselves from the world around them for a little while during this time of repentance, that they had to separate themselves from its ideologies, its philosophies, its lies, in order to focus on how they had turned away from God's perfect ways for so long. Isn't that interesting? We, too, are called to be separate, right? Separate, maybe not geographically, but in a biblical worldview, in how we see life, how we see reality, defined by the Word of God, right? Allowing that to define our reality. Called to take every thought, every thought captive to Christ. Called to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And led by the Holy Spirit without which we always go off trail. Sometimes personal redemption comes as a result of being in the presence of somebody 
who's been redeemed, and they live this out in front of us, right? We need our models, in other words. Ron Nickel speaks of this reality in his, in, in his telling of the story of Chuck Colson. You remember Chuck Colson was in politics, went to jail, got out of jail, started a ministry to, to uh, found Christ in jail, I guess, and, and then started a ministry to prisoners afterwards. And after visiting many people in prison with Chuck, Nichols states this. He says, I met Jesus as if for the first time. I mean, Nichols was already a Christian, right? I met Jesus as if for the first time when I, when I saw his love expressed through Chuck embracing suffering, sweaty inmates in the depths of their failure. Amen to that, right? When I saw one man's story of redemption and friendship with Jesus igniting hope among desolate and forgotten prisoners. Then Colson writes this in his book, Loving God. He says, all my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. Amen. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. Only when I lost everything I thought made Chuck Colson a great guy had I found the true self God intended me to be and the true purpose of my life. If anybody's been going to the Sonship course, this, that's what Sonship is preaching to us, right? And he continues, he says, It's not what we do that matters, but what a sovereign God chooses to do through us. God doesn't want our success. He wants us. He doesn't demand our achievements. He demands our obedience. Victory comes through defeat, healing through brokenness, finding self through losing self. Amen. Amen, Chuck. Good writing right there. When we consider the significance of being able to commune with God through worship, we have to be willing to accept that repentance will always be a key component to this. Repentance reminds us of how the relationship with God works and why we're grateful that it does so. So, all I say to you this week is hike with your heads up, right? Hike with your heads up. Follow the markers. Stop following your own path, right? Get back to God's promises through which He will lead you to the right destination. We spend too much time lost in the woods. If you want to know a good book, I wish I had it up here, but it's back there. A little book, uh, the, the Art of Self-Forgetfulness, uh, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Uh, Steph bought a bunch of copies and left them here for some people. and It is a brilliant little book, and it, a lot of this stuff is right down that alley. Just take the t- I read it in less than an hour, I think. It's like three chapters and very short. So for you non-reader types, it's one you can do. So, um, but go ahead and read that if you can. There's at least three or four copies back there, and we'll get more if we need, if we need to. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for uh, Thanksgiving. We thank you for those holidays that remind us that we need to be thankful, that we need to turn around and look. We have to look around us and see what you have done and, and what you are doing and how faithful you are and how good you are Father, I just pray that that sentiment would not just be a holiday sentiment, but it would be something that follows us along throughout the years. That we would be people that are thankful, 
always thinking about what you are and who you are and how far you've brought us and that we want to do this well. We want to walk with you well. We want to love people well. We want to preach your, your message well. And uh, we want to just be people of the book. So we pray that you would make that our desire. And if we don't have that desire, if there's somebody in this room who just doesn't have that desire, I pray that you, over this week, would just flood their heart with that desire to be in your word, to be close to you, to be walking with you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.